the talk, embarrassing goddess ideals in the world, and what that looks like. So if you're hearing this and you want your essay considered, uh, please do get in touch with me. I'm going to keep the Joseph Campbell roundtables going. In fact, I already have the first few months booked for Venice and Irvine, California. You'll be hearing more about that as we get closer. So if uh, you're here in Southern California, you can certainly try to attend. I'm taking steps uh, to make public my spiritual counseling and life coaching. I think maybe I might have some strategies to help others achieve their spiritual and personal goals. So I'm telling more people about uh, those services that uh, I'm offering. And you know what? I would love to give a TED Talk. That was one of the things I had on my agenda last year, but I didn't work toward it very hard. And uh, this year I, I will, in fact, work harder to, uh, to achieve that. So if you're someone out there who makes, makes those kinds of decisions, I hope you'll contact me. Um, I'm making myself more available for weekend workshops and retreats and speaking gigs. If you'd like to have me visit your hometown and talk about living a goddess-inspired life. And the other big project I'm putting in energy into once again is finding the right partner or production team to get a goddess or sacred feminine-oriented documentary or television series produced and broadcast. So I hope you'll think good thoughts for me on that one because you know what that one's like winning the lottery that's the big one (laughs) so uh, as I will it so shall it be from my lips to goddesses ears may Sekhmet's laser eyes of fire burn away and remove any obstacles in the path of these projects well I'm sure you have your own plans uh, to reinvent your life this year and to reach your full uh, fullest potential so You know, this is just a reminder, stay focused on them every day because it is so easy to get distracted. And remember, what we put our energy on, good and bad, that's what will manifest for us. If we focus on scarcity, we keep getting scarcity. If we're grateful and see the abundance around us, we'll open the sacred spigot so more will flow to us. So good luck with whatever you decide you want to set uh, as your resolutions or goals for the year. Put the list on your altar or on your bathroom mirror or desk so you're adding energy to it every day. And now to tonight's show. Uh, returning to the show tonight is uh, Dr. James Reedfeld. Uh, he was with me last week. You won't want to miss uh, last week's show either. We discussed uh, Islam, facts and fiction. And, you know, I forgot to ask him about genies in Islam. So uh, we're going to maybe get him to chat about that for a second. Um But tonight, uh, we're talking more about goddess spirituality. I'm calling the show uh, Beyond Gimbutas, Hard Facts for Goddess Worship. And um, Dr. Reedfield will uh, give us the facts tonight to support uh, goddess worship and women in religious roles and if the criticisms concerning Gimbutas theories are justified or not. And we're going to get to that in just a minute, so uh, if Uh, You can just be patient, because I know you're sitting there anxious to hear uh, Dr. Riedfeld. He's a a wonderful guest, and he's a sought-after speaker here in Southern California, and I'm so glad to have him on the show again. But uh, I have to take a minute and tell you about Sage Woman Magazine. 
Sage Woman has been around for more than 30 years, celebrating the goddess in every woman. It really has its finger on the pulse of the goddess community. Great articles, art, and classifieds in the back where you can find all the services, clothing, ritual accoutrement, uh, everything you need. And I think uh, its longevity proves that uh, Sage Woman has been bringing the wisdom of women's spirituality uh, to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. Things don't endure that long if they aren't quality. So if you haven't seen a copy, or maybe you haven't seen a copy in a long time, you can call their toll-free number, 888-SAGE-WOMAN, that's 888 888- Seven two four three nine six six, and mention you heard this commercial on uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and you will get a free sample issue. So check out Sage Woman online uh, at sagewoman.com. You can find out about it there as well. And uh, just a quick thanks to Diva Haley for her music tonight. Uh, that ancient mother. Uh, a rendition of hers is called Narayana, and it's on the Sacred Alchemy uh, CD of uh, Diva Haley. So I um, want to introduce you to Dr. James Reedfeld by way of his bio, and uh, then we'll start our chat. Uh, Dr. James D. Reedfeld dis- received his Ph.D. from Claremont Graduate University in Religious Studies in 2006, combining his discipline with history and archaeology. His specialties include the history of Christianity in the early medieval and Byzantine periods, New Testament studies, and Greco-Roman religions. Also at Claremont, he minored in Islam and Hinduism, focusing on Hindu goddess traditions uh, in the latter field of concentration. He received both his Bachelor of Arts and his Master of Arts in History at uh, California State University Fullerton in 91 and 98. He's currently teaching at Cal State Fullerton in both Comparative Religion and the History Department. And every Wednesday night... um, Starting next week again, because he's actually on hiatus from his own show, uh, he can be heard on his radio show called Myth and Legend, History and Religion on Passionate Voices Radio. So we're lucky we have him with us tonight. He's also an author of numerous publications uh, related to history, religion, and archaeology. Many of his articles are published in the beautiful Sacred History magazine. And his latest book is titled London in Flames, The Apocalypse of uh, 1666. I'm glad to say he wrote a wonderful piece, a very heartfelt um, contribution for my last anthology called Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. And it was inspired, no doubt, by his uh, young daughter and his role uh, as a loving father. And he has a passion for studies uh, revolving around Asia Minor, especially focused on the city of Ephesus. So it's no wonder he put out a spectacular book last year uh, called uh, Artemis of Ephesus, uh, Magic, Mystery, and Her Sacred Landscape. And it is a thing of beauty indeed. Uh, Ten years in the making, it is a must for your library. And um, I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that Dr. Riedfeld, or but I'm going to call my good friend by his first name, James, 
that uh, he is, uh, I have no doubt, probably the foremost authority on Artemis of Ephesus on Mother Earth today. So, James, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with me tonight. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you for the, the wonderful introduction, as always, Karen. Uh, deeply appreciated. <laughs> Well, well deserved. Yes. Well deserved. Well, you know, I'm uh, happy to, and and pleased and excited to be talking to you about uh, the, you know, the study of uh, goddess spirituality, and you know, about a little bit about uh, our beloved Maria Gimbutas uh, as well. So, you know, let's just start at the top, uh, so we have context for the whole talk. And why don't you tell me um, how his Studying the sexes, um, you know, or, or you know, uh, yeah. How does studying the sexes interact with uh, current hunting and gathering societies? Actually, contributed to understanding how ancient hunting and gathering societies interacted in the past. Ah, okay. Oh, so the comparative approach. Uh, so going into uh, hunting and gathering societies today uh, and seeing. Uh, how people react within that context, and then mirroring it back uh, to an earlier period. Uh, has human psychology changed all that much? Uh, and, and, you know, it has evolved, but there are certain basic truths. I don't like to use the word truth, but uh, uh, possible facts, there we go, <laughs> that uh, uh, seems to appear. Uh, we do have to talk about that uh, I, I do have to say that after much comparative work, uh, a lot of many anthropologists uh, view uh, uh, ancient man through the lens of modern uh, studies as well as, of course, hunting gathered societies today, uh, that rather than uh, uh, spear-wielding savages, uh, they had determined that the earliest human societies uh, must have been founded uh, with more of an egalitarian concept in many ways. Um, uh, they, uh, in fact, though, we would not have evolved in the successful way that, that we did, in a sense, uh, outsmarting our primate competition without having an egalitarian base. Uh, in fact, uh, many uh, studies have demonstrated that uh, within uh, contemporary hunting-gathering tribes, uh, men and women, tend to have equal amount of influence on where their groups settled and even whom they live with without uh, reverting to uh, either a, a patriarchal or, or a matriarchal system for the, for the most part. Now, of course, there are always exceptions to every rule, and I know so many people say, well, that's not completely true. No, but for the most part, it is. Uh, these hunting-gathering societies do appear egalitarian unless there's some outside influence or if there are anthropologists that still have a very strong patriarchal perspective reading in a patriarchal system within the context of these uh, current societies. We, we have to remember uh, our fellow primates, uh, chimpanzees, are quite aggressive. Uh, they are male dominated uh, society. Uh, they have clear hierarchies. And so as a result, um, uh, there's always the focus on competition. But when it comes to uh, these egalitarian societies today uh, within hunting-gathering context or in ancient times, I mean, really think about it. Really think about it. When it comes to when, when doing these studies, uh, it, it appears uh, for the most part, that that um, 
when you have a male-oriented society within hunting-gathering context, the men, they tend to just hang together and live in groups like brothers uh, 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 being established in a cave and, uh, and, and ruling in that sense. Well, and women tend to be on the periphery of these societies. But why is that important? Well, that means that there's less interactions between the males and the females, and as a result of that, well, there's less, <clears throat> how do I say this, uh, procreative activities <laughs> going on okay. between them. And so this, there, there's a, as a result, there are less offspring. The other factor is in egalitarian societies, when you have both males and females working together, uh, side by side, what this does is it enables a longer period of time for child rearing. And, of course, that enables more time for the brain to develop. Uh, and so, this, of course, the sharing aspect helps us in, in that way. Uh, the other factor is in is egalitarian societies, uh, hunting-gathering ones, uh, when you have women as well as men being in power positions. Uh, you're going to have this interaction of the species going back and forth, and you're going to have more when it comes to a uh, diversification of genetics. In fact, they've done studies of earlier uh, forms of us <laughs> in uh, South Africa where they identified the, uh, the teeth of, of, of women. Uh, and, you know, and it turns out that certain genetic groups in one place uh, turns out the women traveled quite far to find uh, their potential mates. So all in all, it looks like, of course, uh, this is based upon anthropological uh, connections. We're going to go into archaeology in a little bit. But based upon anthropological studies, it does appear that for us to have that competitive edge uh, against uh, the others of our species, Oh, I should say species, but the other uh, primates that we needed to have in an egalitarian society in order to have that extra advantage. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, and I remember I heard you give a talk at uh, the uh, Pagan Pride, I think it was last year, and you were talking about the egalitarian society, I think, at uh, on Crete. Uh, and um, you got in, and maybe you can say a little bit about, uh, you know, the the proof that we had for that. And I, you know, and and I found it very interesting. And I, I think we don't stop and think about this today, but it, you know, kind of going back to your idea of, you know, comparing, um, you know, societies today and then, you know, because things are different for us in our Western society. But I can imagine if you were a woman in a hunter gatherer society. You probably nursed that baby for a really long time. Well, first you were pregnant for nine months, and then you nursed that baby for a really long time. And then hopefully you didn't get pregnant again, but maybe you could have, and the cycle started all over again. So just because the woman was... um, I guess you could say sort of shackled by her reproductive, uh, you know, abilities. Um, and, and so she was closer to home. And right. but that didn't mean that she was relegated to, um, you know, to, to a more subservient role. It, I, I don't know if, right. I, if I use the right terms. So you feel free no, to no, correct no, no, me. No, no. 
No, 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 that, that's, that, that's correct. When we get into, and of course a little bit later on, uh, we can do even more uh, uh, comparative work when it comes to women's roles, which we'll talk about soon, and men's roles. Um, I think that we have this conception in our minds that, that just because men and women do different roles, that one is superior to the other. The old, old saying, well, the men, they're the ones who, who bring home the bacon, and so they're the ones who are the hunters. Uh, they're the ones that are going out uh, and risking their lives uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to get the game and bring it back. And so that women are, are simply uh, sitting there by the cave, uh, taking care of the kids, every now and then going out and uh, you know, you know, gathering plants. This is, this is an unrealistic and unjustified supposition. We also have to, I mean, of course, you have to realize there are some basic uh, bodily differences between <clears throat> men and women uh, that uh, um, women uh, do something that's pretty magical uh, every single month. <laughs> it's that's one of those, okay. You can just say her, moment, sacred right? blood, her, her sacred blood. Go ahead. <laughs> right, right, for, for, you know, three or four more days. And, um, you know, animals have a great sense of smell, and they do smell blood. So that does distract uh, animals in hunting. And that's one part. That, that doesn't mean that there are no women, no female hunters. There is evidence that there are, in some societies, there were female hunters from time to time. And there's a few exceptions. I mean, actually, there's exceptions to all, all these rules. There's a few examples of, of a female hunting culture that is kind of close to an Amazonian context. But for the most part, the men did the hunting. The women, they did uh, tend to do the gathering because they had to stay closer to the tent. And, yes, it's not just simply the time of pregnancy, which goes for, for nine months. Uh, it's not simply uh, the menstruation flow, but it is also uh, <laughs> uh, breastfeeding, you know, People don't realize that, hey, you know, this is free milk here. <laughs> so this is free. It's, and, uh, and so people take advantage of that. We're, you know, we're, 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 you know. So what happens is oftentimes uh, the women would, would breastfeed, even up into contemporary times, from three to five years. So the, so the, the child will be breastfeeding for three to five years, and I'm, I'm sure there's other offspring after that, although many do not survive. And so you have the situation where now you have, uh, you, know, the, you know, she is, you know, menstruation every month, and then you have, of course, uh, breastfeeding, lactating uh, for a longer period of time, and it just doesn't work to the advantage for, for women to, to be the primary hunting group. Again, I'm being very right. careful because there are societies where they are. Well, and that's probably why we say now, I think, give women credit for having started agriculture, right? Well, yeah, well, because what would happen is, is, that, is that during that hunting and gathering, you know, actually, men are, are doing supposedly all the hunting, although they're not, because like I said, there's exceptions. But the women are focusing very much on the cycles of these various plants. Now, in Paleolithic and Neolithic societies, uh, you have 
groups of people, usually between 20 to 30, they're all together, and they go from campsite to campsite. Uh, sometimes they have a summer or a winter campsite that they always visit, and sometimes they move uh, uh, four times a year, but they always go back to the same campsite. Uh, we humans are people of habit and habitat. And so what will happen is that these, the, the women, as they're gathering, they'll, they'll, be, they'll become knowledgeable of the local vegetation in the area. They'll know its cycles. They'll know when it's good to, to pick certain kinds of, of, of fruits or to, to gather in. And, and so as a result, they will start to experiment with the idea, of, as opposed to going out there and gathering, is there a way to bring the food home? You know, bring it, you know. And so and because of that, of course, you have the beginning of agriculture. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I am just a little bit. I will say that, that humanity was forced to come to this decision. Uh, you had a situation around 13,000 BCE. Uh, you had the ending of the last great ice age. And uh, what happened is that, is that humanity in the area of southern Europe and going into uh, uh, Central Asia, everybody hunted the same kinds of things. Uh, one of the biggest staples, of course, is the mammoth. Uh, and the other is the reindeer. These are slow-moving animals with plenty of meat. And, um, and, of course, you catch one, you're good for a week. Well, what will happen is as the ice caps move northward, uh, the slow-moving game will also move northward as well. They'll, they'll move north. Well, as they move north, now the, what, what there is to hunt is replaced by fast-moving game, like gazelle and deer and rabbits. And we know that... Uh, Humanity in the area of, of, of southern Europe all the way to Central Asia, they had to make a choice, uh, either, either go north and follow the slower-moving uh, uh, animals to have excessive meat or stay where they're at. And those, those who had to stay where they're at had to adapt to the new game. But it looks like between 13,000, 12,000, 11,000, 10,000 BCE, that the, that the hunters were not as successful as they had hoped. Where do we get this evidence? Well, uh, first of all, um, you know, we all <clears throat> defecate, and I told you that there's regular campsites that people go to, and so we find these levels of defecation, and we realize, we look at this, we analyze this, that they call it uh, poop archaeology, or poopology, but anyway, <laughs> so you go through it, and you realize they're eating less and less during this period of time uh, meat-based materials, but they're eating more vegetative materials. So it looks like, and also by the evidence of less bones by these campsites, it, it looks like that, the, that, the, that the, they're eating more vegetative matters as a, as, a, as a way to supplement the loss of the meat diet. And it is a joke amongst uh, of Stone Age archaeologists, that this is the era where, quote, unquote, men are not bringing home the bacon, unquote. <laughs> Although they're still, you know, hunting 
shown, you know, with hunting implements and so forth. So they seem to be very proud of something that they're not really doing a good job at. But uh, And so as a result, humanity is forced to focus in on a on the vegetative material. And because of that, uh, we, of course, it helps move us into uh, a more sophisticated understanding of the rhythms of, 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 the, you know, of, the, of the plant materials. And, of course, voila, we have agriculture. And who typically were doing that? Well, as we know, we're back to the women are doing that. So it does appear, although you can never say 100%, that women were involved in the creation of this idea known as agriculture. Well, you know, it almost, I hate to, um, you know, be so rah-rah woman here, because I try to always be fair and balanced, but it feels like the women had the burden of most of the work, you know, if they were doing the agriculture and they were also nursing the children and, and you know, and then maybe having, uh, you know what I'm saying? It sounds like they were the ones that were responsible for more sustenance and, you know, keeping folks alive. And well, is, is that yeah, an un- unfair um, assessment? No, I, I, I don't think it's, I think the reality is, is we simply do not know. The reality is, is it appears, but we don't know the, the, the direct factors involved because it could be, you know, I'm just throwing this scenario out because there's not the game is harder to gain. <laughs> it could be men are also helping out in the process of gathering as well, you know, because these are egalitarian-like societies. So it's kind of sure, like we, right. we all got to survive. It, it's it's yeah. one of those things where I'm sure most of you are familiar with the TV show Survivor. But, you know, you throw a bunch of people on a desert island, uh, and let's just say we throw ten people on a desert island, five men, five women, and there's very little when it comes to resources. Chances are the patriarchal uh, system or, you know, or any other system is going to break down, and it's going to be egalitarian pretty quick because everybody's wanting to just survive. You know, just, just give us something to eat. Uh, you right. Know, uh, give us something to wear so we're not cold. Uh, put something over our heads so we don't, you know, be in, you know, uh, affected by the elements. You know, a bare necessity. And so, uh, egalitarian societies are grown out of this idea that we're just trying to survive here. So I'm sure that uh, even though there are examples uh, within contemporary cultures, hunting gathering cultures that happen to do patri- be patriarchal, where you do have men just kind of sitting around doing nothing. I don't. I don't believe that's the case. I think that probably the men are out there uh, trying to gather as much as they could. But you know, that's just that's just yeah. Well, um, let's let's switch over to the Venus figurines because that's uh, still sort of the time frame we're talking about. I think. Um, you know, tell me about the because I want to get to the egalitarian societies on Kenosis, but let's not get you know move too far forward. Um, you know, so the the so-called Venus figurines that date from the Paleolithic and um, and you know tell us about the significance you know in relation to the positions of women and. Um, you know, do you do you believe that they were actually uh, goddesses? Ah, now you're asking another. Well, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off safe and then get dangerous from there. Okay. Um, okay. Do do I think that they are goddesses? Hmm. Well, let's talk about these figurines just a little bit. Um, you know, 
these Venus figurines, uh, they appear throughout Eurasia. Uh, during the, uh, the Paleolithic and the Neolithic age, there's about, I'd say, around 140, 44 figures known. Uh, they're kind of modest in size. Uh, most uh, have small heads, uh, wide hips, and uh, legs that oftentimes uh, taper to a point. Uh, obviously, it's no surprise that these figurines are exaggerated, uh, exaggerated abdominal region, hips, breasts, thighs, and, of course, of the vulva uh, emphasized in many cases. But what just are these? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in, because there's so many of them. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, let's see, yeah, 144, 45. I'm going to focus in on one example, Karen, and then we'll widen up to other figurines. But I think that uh, okay. that way we kind of see where scholars are on this. I want to okay. focus on on the Venus. Huh? Uh, no, I yeah. said okay. <laughs> okay. Now, I want to focus on the Venus of, uh, of Schickelingen. Uh This is discovered in Germany. And it dates... Uh, about 35,000 to 40,000 years ago. This, so it's 40,000 years ago. This is, this is considered the oldest undisputed example of human, human figurative prehistoric art that is yet discovered. So, so even in general, whether it be male or female, this is the earliest one, and it is female. Uh, but, of course, it's very small. It would fit comfortably into uh, one's fist. It was, it was broken into fragments. Uh, six pieces have been recovered, uh, although the, the, the arm and the shoulder are still missing. It's, it's common, like the other Venus types. Uh, the breasts are very exaggerated, as well as the vulva. The head is missing, although I do want to say that in place of its head, when we take a look at it, there is this... Uh, uh, this protrusion that is perforated, it looks like that, it, that something was strung through it. So it could have been an amulet of some sort. Of course, I'm adding the word amulet. But it looks like there's a hook. So this was not just simply carried in the hand. Uh, it could have been, it was carried elsewhere, probably around the neck. But what does it represent? Now, a carrot. Uh, you know, later goddess figurines out beyond the Paleolithic age, uh, went into the Neolithic age, but later ones, you find these kinds of figurines, the same look in many ways, within a context that seems to be revered. So you're going to find a figurine that does look like this that's placed on a maybe subtle podium or we're going to find in front of it what looks like offering, or we'll see it positioned uh, in, a, in something that appears to be a sacred space. And that's, that is true, for instance, with many of the Cypriot uh, goddesses that are in the, the 500s, sorry, 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 the 5000s, the 4000s BCE. So you're going to see, and you can read that evidence back. But when we take a look at some of these, these earlier pieces, as an archaeologist, I have to say, well, what is the context? We found this. It, it, it was like a three feet of red-brown mud, and there's nothing around it to tell us what it is. Does that make sense? So the only way we can identify this figurine 
is from what it looks like or what we feel it looks like. This is the this is the difficulty when it comes to these Venus figurines. Just what is it? So we, we're, we're reduced to looking at the figure itself. So now I'm going to give you an example. Uh, Nicholas Conrad. Let's see. I'm looking through here. Here it is. Nicholas Conrad. He's the guy who discovered the piece. Uh, he is uh, in, the, in the Swabian region. Uh, he discovered it. He says this image is a uh, veritable, quote, art gallery of early modern human art. Uh, and he says that this figure is about sex reproduction, he says. It is an extremely powerful depiction of the essence of being female. So, so Conrad's interpretation um, um, looks like that uh, he thinks that it is a fertility figurine, uh, and um, it is it is connected to reproduction, uh, the essence of being female. Uh, he says elsewhere that it, you know it must have been revered. I mean, hello, somebody's wearing it upon their body, and so that right. is context. Does this make this a goddess or not? It makes it possibly revered, but we don't have enough. Does that make sense? So it could be a goddess, right? Yeah. But it may not. Now, what I want to there's, do is there's I want to... There's wanna, not en- there, what you're saying is there's not enough evidence. There's nothing around it that supports how it was used or anything like that, really. Correct. So what we have is a figure that... that Looks like it was. It was. You know, it had a head by the head. They have a part where it's strung through, possibly. So it looks like it was carried. So it seems to be important. It could be a goddess, but it may not be. And it appears to be connected to fertility. But I want to give you the other side because you got to play all different sides. By the way, before I, I, I talk about this guy, and I'm, I'm sure. sure. He probably is listening. I'm going to say he's a very wonderful man, and um, um, so I'm just going to be quoting him. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with his opinion, but uh, I just want to tell you at a time. His name is uh, Paul Mellars. He's from Cambridge University. Uh, he is a good scholar, but he looks at this figure. And he says that the figure, quote, could be seen as bordering on pornographic. Oh. And he, he, he adds that, quote, one can't avoid being struck by its very sexually explicit depiction of a woman. He continues, the breasts really jump out at you. I assume <laughs> it was a guy, he says, I'm quoting him, who carved it, perhaps representing his girlfriend, Paleolithic playboy, we just don't know how it was used at this point. But the object size is meant to fit well in someone's hand, unquote. Are you feeling, are you feeling the, the, the conflict, Karen? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's as insulting. Um, you know, the, pornogra- the pornography is as insulting as the ones who say they were just Barbie dolls, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. Right. And so... And so what he's doing is he, you know, I like to say he's pulling the patriarchal part, that he's making an assumption from a patriarchal position that, uh, that uh, is problematic. But my question I have to ask is that uh, are we sometimes making the same supposition from a, from a 
support our own matriarchal card, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so yeah, we kind of like, so like that, huh? that, like that idea, like that idea. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, kind of a thing. Perfect. You know, we're we're all we're all biased, uh, you know, in our own outlooks, I guess. Precisely. So you, you're having these these conflicts. So once again, what's going for this figurine is it does appear to be uh, an amulet, maybe. I mean, it does appear to be carried around for some apparent reason. And it, it is one of the earliest images. In fact, there's so many more female images, far more than there are male images. In fact, there's hardly, there, there are a few, but there's really hardly any male images from the Paleolithic era as compared to the female images. They, they, so they are, there's so many. And they're, they're filled museums, the back rooms. And, and so we have to ask the question, why are there so many female figurines? There has to be some major importance as we get into the Neolithic era. And, of course, as I mentioned, 144 uh, from the Paleolithic era alone. That's quite a few, and um, it's, it's hard well, to ignore. If I could interrupt you for a second, let me ask you a question. Sure. Um, you know, in, in goddess spirituality and, you know, in feminist theology, you know, we, uh, you know we, we teach and I think a lot of us believe that, you know, this idea before we understood the role men played in procreation, uh, you know, woman was seen as the powerful life giver. She could bleed and have her uh, menstrual cycle without dying and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Wouldn't would that all play into this idea that that's maybe why there were more uh, figurines of the female? Which then the next logical step is uh, some of these figurines maybe just were fertility, uh, but, you know, sort of like sympathetic magic. But some of them mm-hmm. might have actually been, um, you know, might have been goddess. Well, yeah. Well, the thing is, <laughs> by the way, Karen, that's an academic thing. Uh, the, uh, the, the, what it is, is is that is that humanity, they're living such short lives during the Paleolithic era uh, and it's the Neolithic era. So they're living on average, what, you know, uh, you know 15, 20, 25 years of age, although there's exceptions where they're, they're living in their 40s. But you're living for a very short period of time, and that means the transmission of knowledge is very short. And and that leads to less of a growing curve. It does appear there are entire societies that didn't realize that men perhaps were in, you know, really involved in the creative process. That suddenly, great magic. The woman got bigger and bigger, and whoa, surprised, you know, you know, my mate looks uh, just like my, you know, my best friend. Wow, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and, you know, not having much of a clue, although we do realize that the linga does become prominent in the creative sense also early on, especially the Indus Valley Civilization. But, um, yes, um, and I guess I'm answering the question. Yes, so what's going to happen is that fertility is, is looked at or possibly viewed as the special preserve of women uh, because they're the ones who bear the children. And so, therefore, that activity is then connected to also the procreative, I'm sorry, the, the creative aspects of nature itself uh, when it comes uh, to uh, the, 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 you know, the plant life. And, of course, later on it will be agricultural cycles. But I want to throw this one just for fun. 
also the procreation of um, animals. I mean, they mm-hmm. procreate too, so so possibly the, the female energy is viewed that way. Now, that makes perfectly good sense to me, and I would say that is a possibility that these you know, fertility figurines figure in that way. But I have to put my scholar cap on. And as a scholar, I have to say, is it true? It's for sure true later on. It's for sure true during the Calcolithic Age. It's, for, you know, for, for sure, you know, true when we get, you know, further on, you know, into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. You're following. But my question is, is it for for sure true during the Paleolithic Age or the Neolithic Age? Are we have, do we have to read the evidence backwards to understand it? hope that makes sense. Or do we have to rely on just simply uh, Jungian archetypes that we, you know, we, we just see these things in this way? So I, we have to be so careful. Um, but I say it's highly likely uh, they are revered, they are connected to fertility, and that from a modern standpoint, they could be, these earlier one, ones could be construed uh, as a goddess-like uh, uh, piece. I hope that makes sense. Is that right? Well, and especially, too, I mean, I didn't realize that the lifespan was so short. Um, I mean, I'm thinking 40 or 50 years, but you're saying much uh, you know, uh, they were only alive a much shorter period of time. Baby, you know, barely out of, you know, uh, get beyond high school age. You know, well, um, well, so that that makes. But uh, but my point, uh, where I'm going with it is the point, um, that makes life and life-giving, I think, even uh, more... Important, if you will, I guess in yeah. a way, if 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 your if the lifespan is so short, um, so I, I don't know, maybe this doesn't make sense, but it if if the lifespan is only maybe an average of you know twenty twenty five years, um, yeah. I yeah. would think the life giving process then um, birthing and you know yeah. is is revered that much more. Um, than if yeah, you think you're going to live a longer life. Yeah, yeah, it's survival. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you, you got to keep the species going. You got to got to keep the. Yeah, otherwise you're going to die out. Yeah, and this is this drive. So people, uh, as as soon as uh, the uh, individual, the female is able to menstruate, it's it's time to procreate. Uh, and, and of course, in these cultures, uh, that was between the ages of at least at between eight or nine years of age. So from our perspective, these are children. But from their yeah. position, these you know you got to you got to start as early as possible in order to you know ensure the, the survival of the tribe or the group that you're a part of. But you know that's uh, and then of course yeah. you have a very short life. And we, we, we they, people had sh- really short lifetimes like this all the way even into the uh, Mesopotamian civilization. I mean you know the three three thousand BC the the average life, lifespan was in their people in their thirties or. Or even in their twenties. I mean, that's just the way yeah, things work. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, and, you, and think it even even uh, beyond those those Maybe early days. Uh, you know, oftentimes we see that rulers of countries, you know, are maybe in their 20s. And we can't imagine 20-year-olds that we know, um, you know, they're, you know, some of them, you know, we wonder if we should even let them drive a car, maybe much right. less let them lead a nation, you know. So life was very different, I think, um, 
in 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 these early times you know we we can't it, i think it's hard for us to wrap our head around it but but yeah. these venus figurines were they all that rubenesque uh kind of shape or was that was that the the norm or did it did it vary well that's that's the that's the part i wanted to talk about because they vary because we can we can take a look at these figurines and go well it's obvious it's fertility you know large breasts you know, representing, of course, nursing, um, you know, the large enhanced belly, uh, pregnancy, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. But what people, what's not talked about, I mean, you know, I guess we're all looking for the Venus of Willendorf figure, you know, uh, that uh, we, but the reality is, is if you take a look at these figurines, there's so many exceptions to that rule. You have like the the Venus of Gaugenberg and the, the Venus of Petrokopas or the, or the Alta uh, figurines from Siberia, and these are 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 not like that. For instance, the Venus of, of, of Gaugenberg. Let's talk about that. Dates from about thirty thousand years ago. Discovered in nineteen eighty-eight. That's probably why those people don't talk about it too often. It was carved out of a green serpentine rock, and uh, it is um, the image. Take a look. It's spelled it's spelled G A L G E N B E R G. Venus of Gaugenberg. Uh, so for you radio listeners out there, uh, t- type in Venus of Gaugenberg and take a look at this image. And it's, you know, it's, it's three-dimensional. as a flat back. Uh, it, one breast juts out to the left. Uh, the other faces frontward. The vulva is clearly indicated. Uh, the left arm is raised. The right hand rests on the thigh. And it is posed as if it is in motion. And it looks like it's dancing, this, and it's not, it's not Rubenesque. It's not really that large, but it looks like a dancing figurine. Well, is this, this is, it's hard to say, oh, could this be a fertility figurine? I guess it could be, but it looks like it's being used for another, another, uh, um, another function. Then, i got to tell you, the, the Venus uh, Petrokopas, uh, 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 spelled P-E-T-R, K-O-V-I-C-E, which from 23,000 B.C.E. This figure, um, uh, it's made out of a mammoth molar. This is kind of fun, carved out. It's a headless torso. It's uh, carved out of iron ore. And um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a skinny woman with very small breasts. Very, it's like, well, what does this represent? And then, and then of course, the Venus figures... Of Malta, not to be confused with Malta. Um, uh, this is found in Siberia. There's there's over 30 of these, and you do find there's also male figurines thrown in for good measure. You have some full figure types of exaggerated forms. You also have thin, delicate women, and some actually have uh, faces and heads, and, and they're t- it's tapered at the bottom so you can you can you know stick into the ground. So what are these? I mean, some people have have said that they're spirit dolls. But what I'm trying to tell you, Karen, is is that we have focused so much on simply the Rubenesque uh, Venus figurines, and, and rightly so. I mean, it, it seems to be very important. We've forgotten that there's a whole bunch of other female figurines that are, are, are thinner ones or dancing. And the question is, what function do these represent? So, so we don't really know whether the thin ones and the Rubenesque ones, um, by virtue of the difference in their shapes, if they meant different things, is that sort of right. the point? 
they, they could mean different things or they could mean the same thing, fertility. So, yeah. you know, and then, of course, you know, so you see the problem. Well, you know, and, you know, and, I mean, you it, have it, one typology, but it looks like there's multiple typologies, just like humans. We all have different reasoning, reasons for carving things. We have different ways of reading uh, symbols, you know, depending upon yeah. what culture. So, and we're as complicated uh, then as we are now. I mean, the, the mindset of, of Siberia 30,000 uh, years ago is probably a little bit different from the mindset of um, of Southern Europe 30,000 years ago. And so we have to we have to account for that diversification within their own context, and that uh, maybe in some cases, yeah. So the so the ones so begin to the point where were there were they goddesses maybe they were but so really the were. only time we can we can really be sure if maybe they they were found in the context of an like an altar or if yes. offerings were being made is is that the thing yes. those are the only ones we can be absolutely sure about well that, that that's the one that we can be absolutely a hundred percent sure of. I mean I mean. Not to say, see, the problem is so many people will say they are not goddess figurines. And, it's, and I think to myself, well, how do you know? Right? Yeah. But, but, but the, on the other side, if somebody says to me they're absolutely goddess figurines, I, I, I give the same expression. I go, well, yeah, right. it's possible. But, you know, and, and it's okay to believe that. And surely, this is where the connection comes, surely later figures of the same typology that's made uh, 5,000 years later uh, were found in those conditions and those contexts, so surely those really are. So if you're, if you're willing to read back the evidence to the Paleolithic era and, 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 and assume that the context stays relatively the same and how to read these images, then absolutely, you could say, oh, absolutely. Well, you shouldn't say absolutely, but most likely these are goddess figurines. But but it, it's hard to say to say this is for sure Venus you know Venus Willendorf is for sure a goddess figurine without any more information. So what what time period or what dates can we start to be sure that some of these images are really goddess figurines? Is it like by the time we're at Chateau Hayuk and we find the goddess in the grain bin? Well, like, like I said, even Chateau Hayuk, it to me. Shatohuyek uh, appears to give a context of reverence that uh, appears to be yes. Uh, Shatohuyek, I think I keep steering away from the word absolutely because you know this is radio, but uh, really, really good chance that yeah. Uh, by the time we get to uh, the Neolithic era, uh, you know even. Uh, there's so many cultures that seem to reveal uh, that you have these, you know, these goddess figurine contexts. So, I mean, even the Natufians, we'll talk about that soon. The Natufians, the Ubaid culture, um, the, the, you know, the Demi culture, yeah. Um, yeah, so it does appear that I'd say, uh, I, I don't want to wrap a date around it, uh, but okay. it does appear around, around you know, eight, 7,000 BCE, these are goddess figurines. The question, again, again is, is context. But having, I don't want to go too far away from this because, once again, there's one part that is missing, and that is we have to realize that 
what are women's positions and how does that connect? Of course, obviously, these figures, because it does, it does appear that women are are emphasized um, early on. But, uh, but yeah, Shatahuyak, 6,500 to 3,500 BCE. I, I, I do believe, these were believed, that these are goddess figures. Earlier, so, it's, it's problematic. It's highly likely many of these are. And, and I'll give you more, 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 more evidence later, but yeah. Well, and I, and I remember, um, I forget her name now. I, I mentioned her in my Sacred Places book, uh, but but it was a, a female scholar was given a talk, I think maybe at Claremont or something, and she said that um, three of the ways we can generally know if these figurines were goddesses is, um, I, I'm hoping I remember all three, but she said that they were, they were, um, they were carved or made using the best materials Material. people had at the time. Uh, right. I think she said also, too, because they were in such abundance, and now the third thing escapes me. Um, I'd have to go back and, and read my book. I'm going brain dead here. Um, Probably do you, may Okay, well, maybe yeah, so. And, and the thing is, is, is that many of these are made out of the finest materials, but many of them are not. Uh, but yeah, you know, you know, ivory, uh, you know, is is yeah, it takes it takes. It's very hard to to carve. It takes many hours. So the person is spending a lot of time, uh, you know, fashioning in a beloved sense uh, these images. So it seems to mean something to that person. But I wish yeah, because you inside the mind of that person or that, that, that well, community. yeah, because you. you you got to think if they had to spend so much more time just staying alive, you know, feeding themselves, staying warm, um, mm-hmm. you know, to dedicate this much time to something like that, it had to mean it was something important, or at least in oh, my absolutely. M- oh yeah, and I agree. The question is, what is it that's important? And you know, it, it, many will say it's fertility, and fertility. Right. Uh, is it, there's a spirituality to it. I think there is. I really do. I really you know, I. I, I saw uh, a special on PBS. It was a six-part documentary called How Art Changed the World. And one of mm-hmm. the pieces he brings out is the Venus of Willendorf. And yeah. he didn't he didn't talk about any of the stuff we're talking about now. I wanted to, like, throw tomatoes at the TV. Because what he said about the Venus of Willendorf, and I just want to sort of get your take on this, is he said, because it was this, you know, this Rubenesque, you know, this uh, figure, um, it was an example of how humanity made things bigger than themselves. Because in order for them, to, you know, to to show its importance, it was like it was something they revered to be, or that's how they sort of ele- psychologically they, um, you know, gave it power or elevated it, right. made it special in their mind. It, you know, they exaggerated right. parts of the body or made the body bigger. Um, he didn't right. even mention fertility, <laughs> you know. And I, right. I guess is that still still yet another theory out there. I mean, it, it's another theory out there. And of course, you're going to have others. You're going to have so many theories. I mean, you're going to have people like, uh, let's see, the for example, the anthropologist at uh, Victoria University. This is in Wellington. Uh, they will, will view that these images are connected to survival and longevity. 
Uh, you know, reproduction, that's true, but more in a collective sense for the community. Uh, I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have lots of different interpretations. There's always sometimes as many interpretations as our anthropologists today looking at them. <laughs> right, so, right. Because we need to have, which is so important when it comes to a historical but also archaeological position, we need to have more context. We need to have right. more indications around the figurine to tell us, and even on the figurine itself. But, uh, but once again, still uh, we can read into you know, that these societies at least were egalitarian, so um, women do hold positions of importance, and, you know, we talked about the fertility aspect, so um, they could be looked at as archetypes, and certainly they, they you know, people are thinking in an abstract sense in that time. You know, you know, you, you ever heard of the, the, the Lovenmensch figurine? No. It was made about Forty thousand BCE, and it has a lion head and a human body. It's actually a little bit older uh, than the the um, the Schalkenlingen figure. It's a little bit older. Yes, yes, yes. I, I I know it. I know it. I didn't know that's what it was called, but I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the question is, is that a the fight's on? Because some are saying, well, this is a goddess figurine because it has a lion head and the lion does not the lion head doesn't have a mane on it and of course female lions uh don't have typically don't have manes and so but they said that that on the body itself it's not really distinct whether it's male or female. Another group says, Well wait a minute, many European lions at that time that are males didn't have manes. <laughs> so the so fight is even going on I mean it's unbelievable, but I mean, this is right. um, front page news. People are fighting, uh, you know, tooth and nail over how to interpret these things, and everybody has their agendas. Right. But once again, right. we have we have to go back to, well, we can go into typologies. We can go into um, how these kinds of images are looked at later on from various contexts, and from these later contexts, it does appear that they're revered. And, uh, and of course, the idea of fertility could be a revered, revered idea, or it could yeah. be actually revered as representing a great goddess of some sort. And there not only appears to be that from later cultures looking back upon these images, but even later mythologies looking back on these figures, too, uh, from an ancient perspective. But that's, that's another rabbit trail. All right, so so let's let's shift gears just a tad. Um, so uh, let's talk about women and you know their religious roles. You know yes. how far how far back does the evidence go um, that you can feel confident about that um, you know that women were holding religious roles and you know leadership. Ah, this is another piece of the pie that I'm, that that will help us possibly interpret the images that are contemporaneous. Good. Well, um, you have the very first image. Well, okay. They found an image. Sorry, they found the body of a woman uh, in the Czech Republic um, from between uh, the bones are dated between 30,000 to uh, 26,000 BCE. So 30,000, 26,000 BCE. 
which which is roughly contemporaneous uh, to these figure eights. That's important. Uh, it was it was discovered at Dome uh, Vistonsi. We talked about, uh, and they found this definitely a female skeleton, and she is unusually old for that time. She is 40 years or older, which is unusual as compared to the other skeletal remains around her, as well as skeletal remains in the whole surrounding area from that time. So she, this, this woman, lived to be a very old age. I know, hey, I'm you know I'm in my late 40s. I don't appreciate being having the idea of 40 being old, but for, for this time, she's she's pretty old. Uh, she was placed beneath a pair of mammoth uh, scapula, so two of them. The one actually was leaning against the other in a very ritualistic fashion. I mean, they're, they're positioned in an intentional sense, very different from all the rest of the burials around around the area. Um, you have uh, you, you take a look at her uh, and. Uh, the, the bones, actually, the, the bones and the earth surrounding the body, they're all were covered in red ochre paint. And, of course, red ochre connects to possibly ideas having to do with life or fertility. Uh, there is a flint spearhead, spearhead, excuse me, carefully placed near her skull. One of her hands holds the body of a fox. And there are other uh, designs around her. And um, what I find is interesting is that uh, she is, she's very prominent, but there is a totematic, uh, in a sense, uh, magical connection with her because we know from other sites that these kinds of, of, of outlays are connected to uh, some kind of mystical or spiritual phenomenology. But what I find is so interesting is that one side of her face, of her skeletal remains, uh, is disfigured. The left side, they found nearby a figurine that also has the left side of the skull that's also disfigured near the body itself. So so not only the, the skeletal remains that has a face that is left side is disfigured, but this image was made of her that's also disfigured in the same way it seems to be she was born with this, 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 this uh, facial situation. So she is definitely revered, and a large portion of scholars say this is the first uh, earliest evidence we have of a shaman, uh, and it's fem- you know the person is female. I mean that's that's a big deal. I, I and think how how far how far back is that? What was the what, thirty thousand BCE around? Okay. Yeah, okay. that's that's really early, and, and the thing is, is that it's it's so early, and but we we find we do find evidence, because I'm going to play it really fair here. We do find evidence that you know male figurines, uh, you know, in that kind of context do appear, but it is it is later on. Uh, it, it's, it's roughly. Um, well, I would say uh, you have around around 13,000 BCE. You found there's something uh, uh, in France known as the sorcerer, which uh, they found in the cave. It's it's it's, it's not an actual uh, skeleton, but it is an image of a it's a human with a beard, but his eyes are of an owl, and he has a tail of a horse and claws of a lion. 
and stayed from 13,000 BCE. Many people say that this is a magical figure of a man. But that's 13,000 BCE as compared to 30,000 BCE. We got some time covered here. And I also want to mention, while she is, you know, she's in her 40s, they have also discovered, uh, you know, later on, other figures like her in other contexts. So it not only appears that uh, the earliest religious figure that we can identify is a female, but it also appears that there's a precedent for that, and that we find others of that. For instance, we find the same thing. Uh, same kind of, we find a 40-year-old uh, woman that is also buried in a, uh, a ritualistic sense within the Natufian culture. The Natufians, of course, are from 13,000 BCE uh, to 9,000 BCE. We find a, a, a figure there, uh, and it, she seems to be, you know, she's of high status. Uh, she's about five foot tall, and this lady uh, is also around 40 years of age. She's unusually old. Uh, she is surrounded by exactly 50 tortoise shells. They were carefully arranged to signify some meeting along with parts of various animals, eagles, pigs, leopards, and also she is found with, a, with uh, somebody else's foot, another human foot there, but also buried in the same. Well, we find these in different places. So it looks like, evidentially, I'm just going strictly by evidence, that women did hold some ritualistic positions early on with, from strictly an archaeological standpoint. Okay, so so then we can almost make the deduction then, if these early um, Paleolithic Venus figurines were in such abundance, and we think, you know, that that is pointing obviously to something feminine, something sacred, something uh-huh. revered, and then uh, then we're seeing this earliest female shaman. It seems mm-hmm. um, it, so. It seems like we're we're not. Um, overstepping ourselves to say that, um, you know, the the female was, uh, you know, had a special class that, uh, you know, it definitely right. wasn't a patriarchal situation. It, you know, it, right. that, uh, you know, they were maybe even primary or, uh, you know, somet- sometimes maybe primary, other times maybe egalitarian, but certainly not um, subservient. Right. So, so the beautiful thing uh, is is that, therefore, when, when we're analyzing the context from which these images are made, uh, it does not seem it would be from a patriarchal perspective. It would be from a, an egalitarian and or revered position in some sense. So, so, so people who make uh, suppositions that these are just like playthings, or you know, make these other you know uh, other kinds of uh, not pleasant uh, words wrapped around these figures or unwrapped around these figures. It appears to be unjustified, like the Cambridge right. comments. You know, it's not okay. just now, pornography going on here. It's not uh, you know, I mean, you Barbie doll. You right, right. Yeah. Because you have this um, okay. context. And, and then, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was gonna. I wanted to give you a heads up on the time uh, because it's already seven eleven. We probably and, okay. and I know we have so much we haven't even gotten into. Um, I oh, got to quickly do a little. I got to quickly do a little commercial, and then we're going to come back and talk about Maria Gimbutas before we run out of time. Okay. 
Okay. Um, so here's some here's something new uh, I want to tell listeners about. You know, for some time on the show, I've uh, described the film Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Uh, well, Joe's also written a book called Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path, which has just come out uh, not too long ago in a new expanded second edition. Feriferia calls itself a love culture for wilderness. Uh, it connects you to the fairy spirits of the land and the stars around you. And it aims to create a, a paradise and sanctuary, sanctuaries all over the earth. Rooted in ancient priests, uh, the Eleusin mysteries, troubadour practices, megalithic traditions, Feriferia celebrates the goddess as the merry maiden called Kore. With laughter and play, they say that Kore carries keys to the future. Um, I want to share this quote with you uh, for the book. It's from a Jason Mankey about Celebrate Wildness. Uh, he's been involved with paganism for 20 years, and he spent the last 10 uh, as a speaker, writer, and high priest. And this is what he says about the book. He says, I began wildness reluctantly, but within 15 minutes I was all in and found myself absolutely entranced by its pages. Some of that is no doubt due to the beautiful artwork of Fred Adams that just about leaps off the page why aren't all of the images in this book available as fine quality prints to hang around my ritual space? But this book is more than art. It's wonderfully written and really serves as a comprehensive how-to on Feriferia. There's lots of great history here as well, but it's the doing and the philosophies that grabbed me. If you're interested in looking into the book, Celebrate Wildness, uh, it's a true hardcover book printed on heavy paper with images of the goddess, photos, symbols, diagrams on almost every page. It's a great coffee table book. It's a great conversation starter, a fabulous gift. And it's available from the Farah Feria website, and that is spelled F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A. And that's by Joe Carson, uh, a longtime supporter of the show. So please take a look at that. Well, James, back to uh, back to the interview and um, Maria Gimbutas and um, uh, Maria Gimbutas, you know, says a lot about the roles of the sexes, uh, evident mm -hmm. from um, the archaeology from the Paleolithic and the Neolithic areas. Um, tell us a little bit about our uh, Gimbutas and uh, her theories and how she maybe gets in trouble in academia, and is it fair that, um, you know, she's she's been marginalized the way she has? Because I know uh, Joseph Campbell called her work uh, a Rosetta Stone. Well, okay, I mean, first of all, um, uh, Gabudis, you know, she is, has quite a, quite a background. She studied at UCLA. Uh, in fact, uh, she was at, from 1963 to 1989, she was there. Uh, she is a well-known archaeologist uh, from uh, 1967 all the way to 1980. Uh, she excavated everywhere from Macedonia to, uh, uh, to you know, in, in, the, in places in Greece. And she's uncovered hundreds of Paleolithic and Neolithic pieces. And uh, she makes uh, she finds cross-cultural and cross-chronological cross uh, symbolic parallels in different places. And so she makes uh, suppositions or uh, based upon uh, these parallels that seem to be everywhere within various contexts, I do believe, of course, we have now exited from talking about the Venus figurines from the Paleolithic era to moving into the Venus-like uh, figurines of the uh, Neolithic. So uh, I want to make, make it clear that our earlier conversations 
were from the Paleolithic Age context, and now we're now entering into the Neolithic Age context, and we're getting to the place where there is more contextual evidence. We talked about Shaftohuyak and other places, and a lot of the pieces that she studies is is uh, you know includes or contemporaneous to that civilization. She's finding pieces uh, from the eight thousand, the seven six, you know five four three. So so I want to make, make I want to make it very clear we're turning the page so to speak, right? We're turning the okay. page, uh, and and we have to now put take off our Paleolithic hat and put on our Neolithic Calcolithic age. See, here's the problem is that so many people uh, you know, can't uh, see the context and the chronology of time, and you know, they'll, they'll only hear, well, he says that none of these images are goddesses. No, I'm saying, you know, I'll be saying, no, 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 I'm saying it's very questionable when it comes to the Paleolithic era to be for sure 100%. But when we get to the Neolithic era, things do change. Uh, and, and, this, and the okay. Calcolithic, it does appear that these are indeed goddess goddess types. The, the, the problem with Gimbutas is how far back she reads the evidence. Huh? See, we've been talking about okay. this all along. That's why I brought up all the other questions. See how that works? You know, yeah. So it answers. But the thing is, how how far back? You know, I mean, she believes that uh, you know that Europe was a uh, a culture centered on goddess as a life giver and sustainer as well as a, a death wielder. Uh, there does appear to be that kind of evidence later on in Europe, but uh, not as early as she says. Hope that makes sense. And yeah. just because there's just there's so many different kinds of goddess figurines doesn't mean it's a matriarchal society. But uh, that's peaceful, and, and because she believes, or she 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 has this ideal that you have in the Paleolithic and the Neolithic era, you have this almost this, this pacifistic-like society, it's egalitarian, and maybe even matriarchal. Uh, everybody's getting along. Uh, it's shared. It's collective. They revere this goddess of, of many names, idealistic, and and. Uh, People are all working together, uh, kumbaya, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, around 5,000 uh, to 4,000 uh, BCE, you have these evil Kurgan groups that arrive uh, out of the um, uh, out of the east and out of the north, and they come around and they they they, they you know they, they take advantage of these poor people and they attack and they bring on patriarchy and. And, uh, you know, villages are burned, and, and a new society is born. And, you know, you have this great rift, and hence patriarchy arrives. Um, you know, and so a lot of scholars say, well, this is kind of, this is rather drastic. It's, uh, and then, she, of course, she goes in, and she looks at the symbols, uh, and she, she views these symbols in different ways uh, as representing uh, egalitarian concepts and goddess and so forth. And... Um, um, and a lot of people question the way she she reads her symbols, and they they, they say that she makes suppositions. So when it comes well, to Buddhists, I'm, 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 well, I'm well, on the fence. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, 
Well, well, okay. So, so they don't always agree with, agree with her interpretations. But it sounds right. like just from our brief conversation, there's a lot of uh-huh. scholars out there who, I mean, like there's a lot of different interpretations. But it almost feels feels like they really um, yeah. zoomed in on yeah. her to do a hit job on her. You know, where yeah. and and would that be fair to say? Well, it is. Um, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and um, um, talk about Yambudas yeah, a little bit more. Well, actually, well, you know, actually, not yet. Um, it, it appears that they, they overstepped their bounds when it came to Kambudas, that, that she may have exaggerated uh, to a certain extent of how drastic it was, uh, the idea that these, you know, the, the Kurgan cultures you know, arise and they offset uh, the egalitarian or matriarchal system and their violence and everything else. Uh, we, we know for a fact in an archaeological sense that uh, before the arrival of the Indo-Europeans into these areas, there have, especially in Central Europe, there were areas uh, where there happened to be uh, uh, not only fortifications, but uh, a large degree of, of warrior-like types. And this, this is coming from a so-called egalitarian culture. Uh, but, uh, and there were, of course, male figurines in places. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, earlier, beforehand, we talked about a few of those. But at the same time, I have to say that, that Gimbutas is right. There is a preponderance of, of female figurines that are in the nude, that appear to be revered, and they by far outnumber male figurines, 10 to 1, in some cases 100 to 1. You just find so many of these. Uh, so it, also it appears that while there were warrior-like groups before the arrival of the patriarchal Indo-Europeans, and they are patriarchal, she is correct there, um, there, 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 you know, there were, um, yeah, uh, what was I trying to remember what I'm saying? I mean, it, it appears that, um, um, oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. I, I, I think there. you were... I think you were maybe saying they weren't they weren't maybe all as patriarchal as maybe she might have implied. Well, okay, they're, they're not as... Well, what's, what's going to happen is this, is that you have tons of goddess figurines and a few male figurines, and the goddess figurines... Uh, are mostly depicted naked, and they seem to be revered. After the arrival of the Kurgan peoples and the others, the Indo-Europeans, when they arrive, uh, you're going to have you're still going to have the production of quite a few female figurines. There's going to be a lot of them, but you're going to find more and more male figurines that appear too. And at the same time, you're going to find many of these female figurines are now clothed. They're wearing clothes, so there is a change there. Uh, you're going to, like I said, while before their arrival, you're going to still have warrior-like groups, and you're going to have a few walled cities. After their arrival, you're going to have a lot more warrior groups and a lot more walled cities. So there does appear to be a real shift in culture at that time. And also when it comes to burial, uh, while before the burial seemed to be more egalitarian, uh, it appears that after the arrival of the patriarchal peoples of the Indo-Europeans, uh, burials seem to be a little unequal or unequal. Excuse me. There should be there's, uh, males are emphasized. So she does 
appear to be correct in that sense. And I think that 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 she is, uh, uh, it's you know she's attacked. Uh, maybe it's you know it is patriarchy uh, having their way about it to make her look so bad that these ideas are viewed as unacceptable. Uh, but uh, she appears to maybe have exaggerated a little too much. But unfortunately, I think uh, academia in general has responded in kind to the same amount of exaggeration. Yeah. Well, and I mean, let's face it. I mean, we uh, well, and and here I'm talking to a, a guy, and often uh, I know you're in academia and an archaeologist and all of that. But I don't know. I hate to put you on the spot here, but so many of the feminists believe that academia is pretty sexist. Um, right. You know, w- would you agree? Um. Or, or it really I would say varies that that's from. Changing. That's changing. Well, that's I, good. I would say that those who are not in tenure position, <laughs> maybe uh, those who have not uh, a large portion of the professors out there, uh, they're, they're not sexist, but uh, the old order still remains. Uh, but within 10 years from now, it will be a different story. Okay. Um, so I, just I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, Okay. And, and the, and fair yeah. enough. And, 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 you know, because maybe maybe that wasn't a fair question because you're still a teacher uh, trying to make a living out there. And um, so, uh, so well, we no, have no, about twenty five. It's a fair. It's a fair Go question. Ahead. It's a fair question, but but the problem is is that uh, you still have uh, an older generation that comes from a patriarchal worldview, and they will they will. Um, they will they will view it as uh, uh, patriarchy, no matter how much evidence you're going to give them. It's gone over to a belief system, but uh, because of the emphasis on gender studies uh, throughout the years, you're doing ha- you are having major shifts with various archaeologists. But it's the archaeologists uh, of the West that are changing quite a bit. But many Eastern European and archaeologists from the Middle East are still, and, and even China. Uh, uh, continue to have uh, a uh, a patriarchal worldview, no matter what kind of evidence you give them. So they they will look at like sex toys or whatever it may be. So you're gonna you're gonna have, uh, for example, uh, a Chinese culture uh, during the uh, during the around 7,000 BCE, where they will uh, have the female buried in the middle and the men buried all the way around them, and all the stuff is accumulated around the female skeleton. And people in the West will say, well, this is obviously evidence of, a, of, a, of a, either a matriarchy or an egalitarian society, and you'll have all these uh, uh, Western names behind it. And then all of a sudden you'll have a slew, because this is in China, you have a slew of all these Chinese names, uh, and these Chinese scholars all say it's patriarchal no matter what. <laughs> hmm. So, yeah, so do, do you... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really just sort of depends on your world view. I mean, you're, you, it's very hard for all, for any of us to be totally unbiased. Um, so, do you think do you think we'll ever see a day when uh, academia will apologize for to Maria Gambudis, or she will be rehabilitated in a sense? Um, and you know, maybe um, you know, like like uh, Joseph Campbell says, her work was a Rosetta Stone. Um, do you think there's some, um, you know, her reputation will will maybe be rehabilitated at some point? Um, I, th- I think that her reputation 
will, will be rehabilitated when it comes to uh, her analysis of the, of the female figurines uh, that are from the latter part of the Neolithic moving into the Chalcolithic period. I think that there'll be a, a, a re, you know, that, that she was she was correct. There, there was a patriarchal culture that did come in. They didn't come in uh, necessarily fighting, you know, warrior-like all altogether. In many cases, we'll find settlements of, of they will settle next to each other. Uh, you'll have the, the earlier indigenous group will be settled one village, and the village, a few villages over in Central Europe and, and Southern Europe, you'll have the Indo-Europeans and those settled nearby, and we'll find evidence that they're trading back and forth, possibly in a peaceful sense, although it could be one is, is looting or attacking from, you know, the other and stealing their stuff. But it does appear that it became more and more warrior, warrior-like, especially the Indo-European types. And, uh, and uh, so, so, so maybe not as drastic and dramatic as uh, she wished, but certainly something like that did happen, but in a more subtle uh, sense, and over hundreds of years, as opposed to a few decades. Okay. Um, about the fair? Indo-Europeans, um, it, you know, who were they, and should we blame them for patriarchy? Oh, great question. Um, so, well, um, we're going to step back in time a little bit. Uh, going back, remember I talked about those animals again? You had 13,000 BCE. Uh, you had the slow-moving animals, the, uh, the reindeer and the the, um, uh, the mammoth, and they and, and with the with the receding of the ice age, they went north, and they're replaced by faster-moving game. And I told you that humanity, in a sense, split in two. Uh, so, so, group, uh, quite a few decided to stay in, in southern Europe, as well as in in the center part of Asia. But there's there was a group that also went northwards, and they followed the ice caps as they receded north because they didn't want to change. They wanted to hunt the game that they're accustomed to hunting, and these became known as the mammoth hunters. Uh, this same phenomenology not only happened in Europe, but also happened in Asia. Uh, there's groups that went north, and in, in these cases, you, of course, men are the hunters, as we talked about before. Well, now they're hunting. And what about women? Well, as you go further north, the vegetative aspect, as you know, because this area was once just under ice, it's not as productive. The soil is not yet as good as it should be. And so when it comes to the gathering of plants, it is de-emphasized. So there's a de-emphasis on the gathering aspect. There's a, there's a focus on the hunting aspect amongst these groups that refuse to change. And now you have men in a higher position. We find that they are buried with more significance uh, in various places throughout Eurasia. Well, of course, mammoth lasts forever, and we have mammoths walking around today, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, what will happen is they'll hunt many of these, these animals, and in one case into extinction. But as the animals decrease... <coughs> The, while many of these groups were warlike before, they will become even more warrior-like because they're fighting over less and less resources. Okay. Then what's going to happen is, is that uh, the, <laughs> you're going to have people that will start to go down south again because 
there's just not enough food to eat. And many of these groups uh, <coughs> occupied uh, what is now Mongolia, sound familiar, which is very patriarchal, mm-hmm. and another group will occupy what is called the Caucasus Mountains. And these are the Indo-Europeans. So they move back down south. And then around 5000 BCE, the Indo-Europeans suddenly leave the Caucasus Mountains, hence Caucasian. Uh, one group uh, goes south, they become the Hittites. One group, they go east, they become the Persians. And then between 2000 to 1500 BCE, they'll become uh, the Aryans who arrive in India, who give us the Vedas. And another group will go westward. And these are the groups, the patriarchal groups that we just talked about, that Gambudas talked about, that arrives upon this egalitarian culture that is Europe. And, of course, Indo-Europeans are inclusive of anybody who is Slavic, anybody who is Germanic, anybody who is Latin, you know, Celts, you know, if you're from the British Isles. They are the dominant group, although they will intermarry uh, with the indigenous peoples, and, uh, but uh, they, will, they will definitely dominate. So it looks like patriarchy is a result of an environmental situation where the hunter men are being emphasized because of the environmental sense, and their role is uh, uh, then secured, and then, of course, that just becomes their culture. So it does appear that patriarchy is artificially constructed as a result of the environment. Well, what a cautionary tale, considering um, global warming is so much in the news. (laughs) Oh, yes. You know? I mean, when you think of... I mean, people fighting for resources and, uh-huh. you know, becoming more violent because, you know, resources are scarce. Um, you know, right. this is what happens. You know, right. um, they, it, it, I it mean, is, you know. It is a sense, the continuation of that patriarch, patriarchal uh, notion that dominates today. I think the important thing to remember is that patriarchy, uh, when it comes to the context today, is artificial. Uh, societies. Human societies tend to be egalitarian, tend to be. There's always exceptions, as I mentioned before. But that is very true with our predecessors. They appear to be egalitarian. Women appear to have uh, positions of power, even religious power, and it's not questioned. Uh, You also have female uh, figurines or images. They appear to be revered in many ways, Uh, possibly goddesses. Uh, during the Paleolithic era, but, but by the time you get to the Neolithic, Calcolithic era, uh, they will they do seem to be goddesses uh, for certain by the Calcolithic. Uh, yeah, and so you have and these. And that's like 4,300 uh, uh, 4, to 3,300 BCE. We, we know that the images are goddesses. Yeah, they're, they're, they're goddesses. Yeah. Oh, um, they're, they're, well, and they, they, can, they can read these back. And these images look very much like the earlier images. So you just say, well, wait a minute. If it's the continuity of these traditions, then these earlier images are goddesses. See how that works? And the, the flaw yeah. of Gambudis is the same. It's absolute, where she probably should have said it's highly likely. <laughs> Ling- semantics. <laughs> I hate to say that, but, you know. And she irritated yeah. many people because she was so absolutist about it. She said, yeah, this, is, this, yeah. is, this, is way, this is what it is. And uh, well, it, it scholars don't like that. Scholars like well, and, perhaps, possibly, you know. 
Well, but but then you think about it. You know, she she had been on so many digs and uncovered so many hundreds and hundreds of figurines. Um, You know, maybe she had a confidence about her work that some of these people who never get out in the field and get their hands dirty. um, I don't know. You know, uh, you think it could have had something to do with that? Well, yeah. I mean, she she went out there and documented over five hundred figurines, and she had her sidekick. Uh, this lovely lady, and what they used to do is they go into a museum, and uh, they would they would uh, uh, her, her friend, I think from UCLA as well. She would distract the curator of the museum as she quickly snapped all the pictures, <laughs> get them talking, get them happy, and so she she was you know foot on the ground. She was there, you know, getting as many images as possible and coming up with these ideas through a cross analysis, and it does appear. Her later materials, it does appear that that there is a uh, reverence towards women that, that approaches them being understood as goddess or goddess-like. Uh, I, I, the only problem that w- would be is how far back can you read that evidence and can you really right. know these earlier images without a, without a defined context. So for somebody like me or uh, or my listeners out there who – uh, somebody approaches them and they say, "Oh, you believe in that goddess stuff that's you know th- that those ideas were thrown out uh, a long time ago with Gimbutas. What's the quick answer to come back and say so that you're accurate um, but yet make them understand that they don't have it right either what's the comeback well I guess the best thing is have you studied this topic in depth yourself have you have you have you are you listening to what other people are saying, or have you taken a look at the evidence? Have you written and have you read any of, of Gambudis's materials and her evidence? I mean, if you're going to put Gambudis on trial, you're going to have to take a look at all the evidence. So before you before you go any further, don't listen to other people. Don't be a sheep. Uh, go look at the evidence for yourself. Read her work, then read other works, and then come back to me and we'll have a conversation because, and because I, otherwise I, yeah right. well and and I was I was just trying to remember too I think there's if somebody wants to um learn about Gimbutas from the Gimbutas perspective I think there's a great uh film out there and I want to say it's called uh, Signs Out of Time or something like that um mm-hmm. it can it it can be googled um Right. I, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, and you know, I think Joan Marler is doing a lot of work with archaeomythology, and I think she's. Anyway, it's uh, if anybody wants more information, well, I can point them in that well, direction. But I, I want to throw one thing else in this too. I want to mention that we're finding so much that is that evidence that seemed to show that women were so very much a part of these ancient societies. I mean. I want to talk about this earlier, but I'll bring it up now. You know the the, the paintings, the hunt, the paint, the, you know all the all the all the images and caves of all these animals, and these are hunting scenes and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that we, we we found stencils of people's hands uh, throughout these caves. You know, same yeah. ones who are doing the artwork, and they right. take a look, and you, you know about this. You know, you know, men's yeah. ring fingers tend to be longer than their index fingers, while women's the fingers tend to be the same length. Well, 75% of them, uh, in case from 13,000, 12,000, 10,000, 11,000, 10,000 BCE, uh, 75% of them 
are, are appear to be female hands, and they're involved yeah. in, in, in putting together these these paintings. So we really have to be careful about making uh, these patriarchal suppositions. It looks like that women are involved in, in all aspects of life, and then when the New Europeans arrive, things do change. Okay, well, something happened. And then how does that affect our interpretation of these images? Right. Well, as far as egalitarian societies, um, I, I, when you going back to the talk you gave at uh, the Pagan Pride, you, you talked a, a bit about proof we have of egalitarian societies. Um, you want to take a couple minutes and maybe talk about that a little bit? or And, and is there any new information out there that maybe hasn't hit the mainstream, you know, that, uh, that we, listeners might be interested in? Well, I mean, <laughs> egalitarian you know, societies, I mean, first of all, one of my favorite ones, uh, I talked about the Natufians. I'll bring it up again. The Natufians, 13,000 BCE to 9,000 BCE, they're a hunting-gathering society. They are, they are, they're so absolutely egalitarian. They're the ones that, uh, uh, you know, did, of course, the domestication of various animals, the beginning of agriculture starts with them. People, people always forget that the, 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 the Tufians are, are, are probably connected to the, the Gobekli Tepe sites from 10,000, 9,000 BCE. I mean, they're, they're everywhere from, from the Levants all the way to, to uh, what is now eastern Turkey. So we find, you know, you know people are buried in, equal, in an equal sense. But even when it comes to um, uh, the, the images, uh, the Ain, what's called the Ain uh, Sakri Lovers, it's, it's spelled A-I-N-S-A-K-H-R-I, you have this is the first image of a male and female making love, and these two lovers are carved out of a single stone, and they are directly facing one another as equals. Their legs are intertwined, and in one case, one of them is holding the other's face. It's a, it seems to be an embrace of love and equality, you know, you know, placed on stone. The fascinating thing about this image is that if you look at it from side to side, it's it's a you know male and female, uh, you know, uh, making love. If you look at it from the from the from the back side on either side, it's a male phallus. If you look at it from the top, it's two breasts. It's, it's, it's two breasts, and of course, if you look at it from underneath, it's a vulva. So it is clearly some kind uh, of image. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be just for. Uh, 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 it seems to be more than just a pornographic-like image, but you have you have the majority of societies, the Tufians moving on down to uh, you know Chateau uh, Huyak. Uh, looks like the majority of ev- evidence you have patriarchal sorry matriarchal sorry matriarchal, egalitarian societies like the uh, Pelagon culture of China is uh, is egalitarian, and that of course is from. 7,000 to uh, 5,000 BCE. I love the, I should bring this one up, the Murgar culture uh, in Pakistan, 7,000 to 2,500 BCE. I so wanted to bring this up earlier. I'll just bring it up right now. Okay, here, they're, they're thriving between 7,000 to 2,500 BCE. And um, all the figurines are female all the way up until we get uh, to 
between 26,000 BCE and 2000 BCE. So for pretty much for the first 5,000 years, there is no male uh, figurines. They're all female. Then suddenly the male figurines appear, and they have very elaborate hairstyles. And why I'm bringing this up is that many of them have the Princess Leah buttons. <laughs> but it's uh, very, very focused in on that. You had the Armukian culture, that egalitarian culture. You know, you had the Halep culture. That this is also a, 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 a egalitarian culture. You know, you know, so you have Chapahuya. You know, you go through, you go through history, the Ubay culture. Uh, the funny thing about the Ubay culture is that uh, it, it thrived from 6,500 to 3,800 BCE. And the Ube culture, it is definitely egalitarian when it comes to burials and uh, images and whatever it else is. But it, until you get uh, to um, uh, around uh, 4,500, then all of a sudden uh, things start to change and it slowly but surely becomes a patriarchal culture in the very end. So we're looking at, uh, for the most part, uh, uh, egalitarian cultures that dominate Eurasia, for the most part, uh, all the way until we get to, well, guess what? That same period of time between 5,000 to 4,000 BCE, and then suddenly it's the same time that the patriarchal cultures appear, the Indo-Europeans arriving in Europe and spreading elsewhere, but it's also the same time where the Middle East goes from being egalitarian slowly to patriarchal and may be influenced by these Indo-Europeans that are sweeping across the northern section of, of the Middle East. So we always think of the Middle East as being so patriarchal. Isn't it an interesting irony that it could be the Indo-Europeans that are sweeping across uh, Persia into India that could be influencing them to become patriarchal. Now, before that, they're egalitarian, the Tupians are egalitarian, and all these other cultures. And the same thing, of course, it appears that the, uh, even in the Indus Valley civilization, they're egalitarian. So egalitarianism appears to be the rule up until 5,000, 4,000 BCE, strictly from an archaeological material, uh, uh, material sense. And I think, Karen, that's a big deal. And well, yeah, it is a big deal, especially you know when when we talk about you know the 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 state of the world today. And well, like you said, our patriarchal culture today is uh, artificial. We don't have to have it. Where uh, if I if I'm understanding you right, it's a you know we're we're having a patriarchal culture now by choice. But I think if I understand you correctly, the patriarchal culture of the past came about because of the lack of resources and this, um, yeah. you know, this this fight for survival. Well, and, and also uh, the refusal to change because the, they went up north in the first place because they didn't want to adapt to something new. Yeah, hunting new animals yeah. or trying uh, trying more plant food. I mean, so. It, it is a combination between the idea of yeah, lack of resources, but also uh, the idea that you're unwilling to change. We want life to be the same, and as a result, uh, you have uh, this kind of situation forming. Uh, I know you wanted to bring this up, so I'll bring it up real, really quickly. And that is the Minoan civilization was was one of the the last egalitarian, major egalitarian civilizations uh, to thrive uh, in uh, uh, in the Mediterranean world. 
uh, and uh, it continued on. But uh, it would, of course, obviously it collapsed between 1,500 to 1,400 BCE, and obviously you have the uh, uh, the great Thera eruption that ended it. But it was a egalitarian society, and who took over? It was the Mycenaeans, and the Mycenaeans are the Indo-Europeans. See, hmm. uh, the Minoans were not Indo-European. So in a sense, you have the last Indo-European takeover via the Mycenaeans. Uh, uh, taken out the last visage of this egalitarian society, having taken over everything else, and uh, around the obviously the, the middle of the second millennium BCE. Now, now was it? Uh, it and I hope I'm not embarrassing myself here, but wasn't it the Mycenaeans that also went over to Troy? Yes. Yeah. And the, was the Troy the product of them? So would, now Troy was in that area where we had egalitarian societies, right? So when the was it the was it um, pa, was the was it the patriarchal Mycenaeans who were battling it out over in Troy, or was it one patriarchal culture against another by that point? One patriarchal culture against another at that point, because uh, the various groups that now occupied Western uh, Anatolia uh, were were highly influenced by those who are the Hittites, and the Hittites were Indo-Europeans. So it was indeed uh, one one uh, group you know, against the other, although you do still have uh, remnants of these egalitarian cultures still surviving in, a, in Anatolian Asia Minor, uh, and uh, not the case of Troy, but further down south, and obviously that connects to uh, Greco-Roman religions, you know, connects to uh, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, and also tells you the reason why goddess worship was such a big deal in, Anato- in, in, in Anatolia. That's a remnant, that's a leftover of these egalitarian cultures that were still uh, uh, asserting themselves. Okay. Well, we we covered a lot of history. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh a lot a lot you did a really good job thank you and um oh. we probably got about fi- about 5 minutes here um i was unless there's something a big important uh, part of all of this you missed i thought i would have you talk a little bit about your your book and your discovery in turkey oh okay uh, <laughs> so uh my book i guess i should go over uh to it and just like hold it by hand so i feel like uh, it's, it's real um, my book, Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, Mystery, Magic, and Her Sacred Landscape. It did take me about 10 years to write. Uh, I spent up to eight months uh, in Turkey over the years uh, working directly uh, with the archaeologists at the site. I actually worked with uh, the American archaeologists. Um, I worked with the, Aust- uh, the Austrian archaeologists and through Sabine Ladstadter. And I even worked with the Turkish archaeologists, so I had a chance to get to know everybody, um, and that was that was, a, that was a great time. I really loved being there. And what I what I what I what I realized is that archaeologists, wonderful people, they don't always tell other archaeologists everything. So I spent my time uh, hanging around each group, getting all the information I could I could from each one of them, in order to give me clues to figure out uh, where to get the best. Uh, sources, and so uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, I was able to make a deduction uh, 
uh, uh, that's in my book, I talk more about it, of exactly where uh, a famous site was located. Long story really short, we all know the Temple of Artemis. Uh, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's greatly revered. But what people don't realize is that, according to Cornelius Tacitus and Strabo and, and others, uh, Ephesus had another important spot, and they claimed to be the place where uh, Leto gave birth to Artemis and Apollo. Obviously, other Greeks, Greeks contested this claim, uh, locating you know uh, this birthplace and other uh, places, but uh, the Ephesians believed that, and as a result, uh, pilgrims not only went to the Temple of Artemis, they went to what are, what's called the Orcadia Gardens. Uh, but this site had been lost for so long, and um, I was uh, what I was doing is I worked and made various deductions and located exactly where this lost garden with its temples uh, is located. And I, I talk about that in the book. So that's a major discovery. And I talk about how I made the, the, this deduction within the book. So, uh, so my name is connected to the discovery of where Leto gave birth to Artemis and Apollo, which is kind of cool. Um, they should, so that's they should have a big thing to look at they, they should have a big sign there when when the tour buses pull up. Uh, Ortega Gardens discovered by Dr. James Reedfeld. <laughs> well, the problem is is that the site again the general locality. The site is uh, I don't, and for you radio listeners, the problem is is people who want to take from the site. So I have to be intentionally vague in order to preserve the antiquities because people uh, keep stealing things, keep digging up things all the time and. And uh, and that's a problem. So uh, when it comes to a big sign that says Ortega Gardens, it probably won't appear for another 10 years or so when the archaeologists are finished working in that, in that area, if that makes any sense. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I do give enough evidence of exactly where it is. And, of course, well, obviously in the book I talk about uh, how Artemis was considered a universal goddess, how she incorporates... Uh, all the other aspects of popular goddesses in the Greco-Roman world, according to people at that time. In many cases, she was even more popular uh, than Isis amongst the common rabble. Of course, the problem is, is the commoners are not the ones who are the writers, the literati. But when it comes to material evidence, archaeological evidence, we find uh, images of Artemis of the Ephesians everywhere. And why is she important? Why does she... Uh, get honorable mention, well, actually special mention, even in the, the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles. So I go into, in this book, exactly how the, she was worshipped worship from the uh, inscriptions themselves. In many cases, I leave the inscriptions. I have the inscriptions translated in Greek above from the Greek, but down, down below I have the original Greek in the, uh, the content notes. Because I want you to know that this evidence is coming directly from inscriptions discovered at Ephesus uh, about exactly how people worshipped her. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we've heard it said that, oh, we can't recreate these ancient um, religions, but you sure have. You have everything there is to know about what it was like to worship in uh, the, re the religion of Artemis. Right down to how they danced. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And and you know the recipe for the various cakes and so forth. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. 
So, so if, you, if you're very interested in in um, in, in, in uh, understanding intensely an ancient belief system from the inside out, uh, based upon the primary sources from that time, then really this is the book for you. And if you're a practitioner, you could uh, you could really just recreate the whole Artemis cult in contemporary times just using your book. Absolutely, except for the animal sacrifice, probably will not go over too well. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you just 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 make the chocolate bull. I've heard that's what you, you do, do these that, days. I guess. <laughs> you could supplement it with well, something else. <laughs> um, well, James, um, we're we're start we're really uh, short on time. I can give you two minutes. Um, please tell about your radio show and the talks that you give um, down here in Southern California. I'm a PWR Radio LLC, and I uh, I do a Wednesday talk. Um, uh, sorry, Wednesday, every Wednesday I do a radio talk, and then I do localized call, uh, talks in different places. Uh, specifically Common Ground in Santa Ana, and I do talks at Ipso Facto in Fullerton. Uh, my intention is to bring the conversation from academia, from the ivory tower, and take it to the general public because I believe that you, listeners, uh, deserve to have the very best information, what we see in the media today, what we see on television, even what we see in the History Channel. Uh, a lot of it's not very good. A lot of it is popular. A lot of it is is just uh, uh, meant to entertain. But uh, while it can be very entertaining at times, at least I hope I am, uh, I really <laughs> want to uh, delve into these issues, and I believe that my listeners uh, have the capability of understanding these ideas and that it could lead to a more informed general public uh, that could help radically cause a shift in the paradigm possible. Well, and and I should say, you know, uh, you uh, you give talks to many rooms that are standing room only. You are one of the one of the popular uh, scholars down here in Southern California. We're lucky to have oh, you. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank of course, you, so much. you it's been can great find. Great being on your video show. Uh, well, thank you, and I hope listeners will tune in to your show on Wednesday night. You have a lot of stuff in the archives uh, that they can listen to. Um, great adult education. I, I think of it as continuing education without having to uh, go to po- college and, and pay those uh, high bills, <laughs> the high cost of <laughs> yeah. college. Um, and, of course, your book. Uh, yes, go yep. to your archives and uh, your book uh, on Amazon. Is that the best place to yep. get it? or? Amazon's a good place to get it. Uh, just just type in my name, James Rietveld, R-I-E-T-V-E-L-D, V as in victory, and uh, type it in. You type in Artemis, and it should appear both in Kindle as well as a text form, uh, you know, actual material you can actually hold in your hands. Uh, I took the pictures myself, so if you're wondering who took those pictures, uh, that was me uh, with my little digital camera. So, uh, Okay. Um, but uh, I love capturing uh, these places, and I wasn't very happy with the quality of, of some of the other pictures, so I thought I would just use my own because I know what I'm looking at. And hopefully and do it after yourself. you read my book, you will too. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it is. It's a it's a beautiful work of art. It's not just a scholarly, uh, a wonderful scholarly, scholarly accomplishment, but it's uh, 
I consider it a, a piece of art, too. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Well, James, oh, thank, thank you, you very much. I look forward to having you back sometime when you're not give, doing your own show on Wednesday night. Uh, so, uh, so thank you, and until next time. All right. Thank you so much, All right. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. All right. Good night. Uh, well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing Dr. Riedfeld tonight, and uh, I will leave you with the uh, mottos of the show. First, they ignore you. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. Then you win, as Gandhi said. Or, in the words of author Schopenhauer, the philosopher, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. Thank you for tuning in tonight, and I hope you'll be with me next Wednesday and every Wednesday. Uh, Please be sure you uh, uh, check the uh, follow button uh, on my uh, show page so that you um, get notice of uh, the great guests that we have on the show uh, every week. And uh, finally, from Monique Wittig, she says, there was a time when you were not a slave. Remember that? You walked alone, full of laughter. You bathed bare-bellied. You say you have lost all recollection of it. Well, remember. You say there are no words to describe this time. You say it does not exist. But remember. Make an effort to remember. Or failing that, invent. Good night, listeners. Until next week. You're the gas in my tank. Until then, have a good weekend. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.